you really want to go to bed on an empty stomach. And if the patients, if we tell our patients, if you're going to do one thing, like shut the kitchen, put a lock on the refrigerator at six o'clock at night and don't lay down till 10. And if they just do that, the majority of patients, especially if they're in the non-injury category, um, are really going to do fine if they just listen to that. Are you struggling with bloating, gas, constipation, and fatigue, but don't know what's causing these problems? The Gut Health Reset Podcast with Dr. Anne-Marie Barter dives deep into the root causes behind these issues that start in the gut. This podcast will give you the knowledge you need to heal your gut and reset your health. Today on the Gut Health Reset Podcast, we are going to address reflux and the common causes. We're going to dive into lifestyle changes that you can make that will potentially help your reflux and to know what's normal and what's not with reflux and to know if you have something called GERD. We're going to talk about the different types of reflux. We're going to talk about the underlying causes and what to do if potentially you've been on an antacid or proton pump inhibitor, what next steps should be to maybe investigate the cause of your reflux. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the Gut Health Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter, and we just want to thank you for listening, for supporting us, and we are just so grateful to have you. Um, Today, I have a very special treat. I have not one, but two physicians that I'm interviewing who are just awesome and have a passion for helping people. The first doc that we're interviewing today is Dr. Bolinski, who followed in the footsteps of his father and his grandfather to join the family business, becoming a physician. His desire to comfort his patients and ease their pain runs deep. His distinguished career has been guided by an overwhelming drive to help people feel better in order to live happier lives. Since completing medical school and a residency in otolaryngology at Tulane University, followed by a fellowship at Wake Forest, Dr. Bolinski has dedicated his extensive research and clinical practice to those suffering with voice and swallowing problems. Every day, he sees patients with pain of reflux. Every day, he wants to do more. My second physician that I'm interviewing today is Dr. Franco, who is also the son of an otolaryngologist. He is also a celebrated laryngologist himself based in Boston. He has the belief that every person deserves the highest quality of health care. That is what drives his work. After graduating medical school from Pennsylvania State University, Dr. Franco completed his otolaryngology residency at the State University of New York, followed by a fellowship at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary, Harvard Medical School. Dr. Franco enjoys the academic world of medicine where he strives to increase patient safety while decreasing their financial burden through innovations such as shifting procedures from operating rooms into offices and investing himself in endeavors like alternative reflux therapy. Dr. Franco attends a busy practice while maintaining his clinical research. He is a frequently invited speaker to conferences around the world. He also volunteers for philanthropic medical missions and teaching surgeons. Thank you so much for joining me here today. We're super excited to have you guys, and we are going to talk all about reflux today. So we're going to get into this. So um, without further ado, what is reflux? Yeah. I'll take I'll take this one, Ramon, if you want. The um, 
reflux is simply like we all reflux. It's a it's an essential physiologic mechanism. The stomach needs to vent gas. And in simplest terms, the purpose of reflux is the stomach's necessity to, to relieve gas. Um, we all burp probably somewhere upwards of 30 times a day. It's normal. We swallow about 15 cc's of air um, every, time, every time we swallow, which is about 1,000 times a day. So the stomach needs to vent that gas. Um, when we vent that gas, the lower sphincter of the esophagus relaxes, and we, what we experience is a burp. But sometimes with that burp, stomach contents can come up with that. And that's what we call physiologic reflux. So up to 50 times per day for these lower relaxations of the distal esophagus um, is considered normal. Oh, you wouldn't want to be without it. Um, you'd be very bloated and distended and be farting all day, essentially. So, so what's the difference between um, something reflux that maybe needs medical attention versus reflux that is just normal function of the GI system? So, gastroesophageal reflux disease could mean symptoms that are bothersome. So you could have physiologic or normal amounts of reflux and just have a very sensitive esophagus or throat and experience discomfort. So for you, that normal amounts of reflux may be abnormal for you because it's causing you discomfort. Other people um, you know, may not experience such discomfort when they're regurgitating or when they reflux, um, but the actual stomach contents may cause injury to the esophagus or to the throat. And then they don't get heartburn, but they may present with swallowing problems or even cancer um, or hoarseness or cough. So, you know, all these symptoms that are so common for all of us. Well, you dropped kind of a bomb there, like, <laughs> or maybe cancer. So when are we getting to a point where we potentially need to be concerned about GERD, so I'm just going to shorten it. When when do we get to a point where that's more concerning and we really need to look at seeking care? Danger signs are food getting stuck. That's a big, huge red red flag for us. Um, food getting stuck, um, more than just intermittent symptoms. Um, so excessive um, regurgitation or pain or cough. Cough is also another danger system uh, symptom that persists for more than eight weeks. Um, uh, unexplained weight loss, hemoptysis, or coughing up blood; those are kind of dangerous signs. Hoarseness that persists for longer than, you know, three or four weeks is also would be a danger sign for us. Okay. And what about more of uh, sinus symptoms? Are you are you noticing? maybe a presentation that can look a little bit like allergies when it could actually be reflux? You want to take this one, Ramon? Yeah, sure. Um, yes. So it's something that has been established, especially in children, um, where the uh, the adenoids can get inflamed, and then that causes problems with the ears, so they can have ear infections that are recurrent, as well as sinus issues. And we do see that in adults as well. And can you clarify for some of the listeners what the adenoids are? Oh, sure. So the adenoids are a, it's a lymphoid pad in the back of the nose, what we call the nasopharynx. 
And the way you have to think about the, the lymphoid uh, tissue is that it's distributed throughout the, the back of the throat. So from the back of the nose, the nasopharynx, into the throat and the bottom of the tongue. And that forms a ring that we call Waldeyer's ring. And it makes sense because that's where we, we sample the environment. The outside comes into the inside and it has to hit the back of the tongue, the throat. So we have lymphoid tissue there to help protect us. Okay, so, so let's say a kiddo has this or an adult has this and they go into their primary and generally the first course of action tends to be a prescription for a proton pump inhibitor. And correct me if I'm wrong here. So a PP, also known as a PPI. So why, why is that maybe, a, is that concerning at all to be on that long term? Or when do you know, hey, like we need to do something else with that treatment method? Because a lot of folks are on PPIs for years upon years upon years. The, the issue with PPIs is, you know, we'll just, let's just talk about, let's call them antacids, right? Because there's proton pump inhibitors and everyone knows these is like Prilosec or the generic Omeprazole, Protonix, Nexium, Effects. there's like a half dozen of them. Um, but there's also the H2 blockers, which are Zantac, um, Pepsid, or probably the two most common. Um, they're acid blockers. They don't actually prevent reflux. They're just antacids. Um, so you could still have symptoms. You eat, you know, a, a cheeseburger for lunch or something, or even like an acai bowl or something. And if you eat too much, um, your stomach's too full um, or is just delayed in emptying, it can regurgitate and, and come back up into your esophagus, even into your throat. Um, so the PPIs or the, the antacids, um, don't prevent that at all. They just increase the pH of your stomach. Um, so the what is regurgitated is less likely to cause tissue injury. But you can still get symptoms. You can still get irritation of your upper airway. Um, your regurgitated contents can also end up in your lungs. Um, so the PPIs, really, they're not anti-reflux medications. They're very effective antacids. So the it's not acid that causes injury. And again, all the PPIs and H2 blockers do is increase the pH of the stomach. It's actually the proteolytic enzyme pepsin that causes tissue injury. And pepsin can actually adhere to the lining of your esophagus in your throat and then be endocytosed or sort of stick to the lining of your throat and esophagus. And then when you regurgitate later in the day, if there's if it's acidic, um, it can activate that pepsin and cause tissue injury. So the PPIs, H2 blockers are very effective at preventing tissue injury, but they're less effective at really eliminating symptoms because they don't prevent reflux. So in a, a situation where, say, reducing or, you know, actually increasing your stomach acid would be effective, would be in a situation where you have an ulcer, for example, because you're saying that, hey, let's stop tissue damage here. Let's stop erosion. And so that's a really important point. So how how long is maybe an ideal time for people to be on antacids? Well, the issue is that the majority of people with symptoms don't have erosions. Mm -hmm. so that's what I've noticed. Yeah, so it's 20% do, and maybe even a little less than 20%, maybe even closer to 12% have actual tissue injury. Um, 
the difficulty is knowing are you in that 12 percent or you know are you in the you know are you in the the larger group that's less likely to have the tissue injury um, but if you don't have tissue injury it's really a symptom driven disease and you don't need to be on um, chemicals at all you can handle it with behavioral modifications with alginate therapy um, just with changing your diet right um, but if you're in that 12 percent that has tissue injury that injury can be really damaging it can cause swallowing problems that can persist for a lifetime um, it can cause cancer um, it can cause all types of problems so it's really just um, you know if you're in that 12 percent you really need to be on you know the effective uh, prescription medications um, if you're in the larger category that doesn't have tissue injury you can really um, handle it without drugs yeah it so the other modification that I hear made a lot and I'd love to hear what you guys think is to sleep sitting up. Ramon, do you want to take this yeah. one? No, definitely. <laughs> I was going to say, so, you know, when I, when I see patients in the office, the first thing I start out with is let's, let's talk about diet and behavior modifications, right? Medicines are short term, just like we were just talking about, you know, you don't want someone on proton pump inhibitors for the rest of their lives and there's really no need for it. The things, this is more of a lifestyle problem, right? We're doing things to ourselves that increase the propensity for the stuff to move from the stomach into the esophagus and then into the throat. So diet, I tell them things like caffeine, things like mint, chocolate. These things have chemicals inside of them that can cause relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. So when you think about it, your stomach is this bag where you pour stuff into it, right? Solids, liquids, and the stomach's job is to grind all of this stuff to increase the surface area for all these enzymes to come and break everything apart. Well, it's very efficient at this, but it's a bag that only has two ways out, up to the esophagus or into the intestines, right? Your abdomen is seeing relatively high pressures, right? You have this wall around it, all around it, so the pressure is high. The chest, where the esophagus is, is very low pressure. So there's a natural tendency for things to want to get sucked up into the, into the chest area, into the esophagus. So we have the lower esophageal sphincter, which is there to basically be a gate and stop that. Well, if you're now loosening the, the function of that gate, well, you have a problem, right? Then the more you fill the stomach, the more stuff is going to come up into your esophagus and give you symptoms. So eliminating those things that can decrease that tone. Things such as like spicy foods, if you eat a lot of very low pH things, so you know diet, diet soda, uh, very low pH, that is going to reactivate the pepsin that's sitting inside of your throat and your esophagus, even without refluxing up anymore. So if you just have pepsin peppered in there, it's going to reactivate that pepsin. Um, we go over things like making sure that you don't over distend the stomach. So instead of having a very large meal, it's better to have maybe two or three smaller meals so that you're not over distending it, increasing the propensity for things to shoot up into the esophagus. The now, stomach, go ahead. The stomach takes about four hours to empty. So in addition to elevating the head of your bed, you really want to go to bed on an empty stomach. And if the patients, if we tell our patients, if you're going to do one thing, like shut the kitchen, put a lock on the refrigerator at six o'clock at night and don't lay down till 10. And if they just do that, the majority of patients, especially if they're in the non-injury category, um, are really going to do fine if they just listen to that.
So many people struggle with bloating, bowel issues, brain fog, fatigue. You might not even have any gut issues, but did you know the cause of it could be food sensitivities or gut infections? What I have done is I have brought a talented functional nutritionist into my practice. We have very similar training in the nutritional world. And her name is Alexis Appleberry. She is awesome. So you can head on over to our website, Alt ALT FAM FAM Med MED, and have a consultation with her and schedule so that she can help you get to the root cause of your problems. Um, I don't know about you, but people have a really, really difficult time not eating about three hours before bed. I know. Like, I've seen it. I've seen yeah, it over yeah. and over again. All my friends, they get home from work and they finally put the kids down and then they want to sit down with their significant other and have a glass of wine. And, you know, it's 930 before they're even putting their feet up. So it's it's hard. Um, but if you can really shut the kitchen early, five, six o'clock, um, you can really prevent a lot of the nighttime uh, injury that happens. Um, and also, like you said, getting gravity on your side, what is it? Gravity is like 9.8 meters per second, right? So we, we want that gravity on our side. So the stomach it preferentially drains instead of backs up. The, the ongoing debate has been, you know, do we, are, are we too acidic? Do we have not enough stomach acid for reflux, et cetera? And I think every case is individual, right? If you have an ulcer, you've got too much. If you um, potentially on reflux, it might not be enough. Who knows? What's your feeling on not enough, too much stomach acid? Um, what's your thought on that? So I, I would say that this is not really a, I guess it's not necessarily too much acid, too little acid. It's where is the acid? Right. So if you took that same stomach acid that lives very nicely in the stomach and put it on someone's eyeball, we have a big problem. Right. So it's, <laughs> where is that acid? We want to keep it in the stomach. And, the, you know, the past 20, 30 years, we've really been focusing on decrease the acidity, decrease the acidity. And yet, despite being on proton pump inhibitors, patients don't necessarily get better the way we'd like them to. Right. So it's not just about how how acidic the environment is. Now you have to say, let's try to keep find ways to keep the stomach acid in the stomach, and then patient symptoms will get better. Which is one of the huge benefits of alternate therapy, right? We're not altering the gastric pH. Um, we're preventing regurgitation. What's the feeling to, how much does a role of H. pylori play um, in reflux? There's actually been some work to suggest that H. pylori is protective against gastroesophageal reflux disease. And some people see the, the reflux pandemic, you know, it's like over a quarter of the population now suffers from at least weekly heartburn. Um, so people really think that the treatment of H. pylori or the, the eradication of H. pylori may have something to do with that. Um, the issue is H. pylori is also a primary cause of ulcers in the stomach and small intestine, as well as stomach cancer. Um, so it's sort of a trade-off there, but um, you know, certainly um, if H. pylori is, is present, we, in the vast majority of places, really recommend eradication of it. And what's your thought on that? Do you believe eradication is important? Do you believe it's just important to get to the point where the patient has 
no symptoms, you know, no ulcers, et cetera. Where, where are you guys with that? Okay, you want to take it? I'm sure. The, um, yeah, I think if the, it's really based on endoscopy findings at endoscopy, again, if there's, Emory, if there's tissue injury, as, you know, as a surgeon who sees cancer on a daily basis, like my patients, at least my recommendation is let's, let's treat this, let's get rid of this. If they don't have tissue injury, um, then again, really, I'd like to find more natural ways of, of making their symptoms better. Because again, quality of life, uh, natural therapies are so effective at handling the symptoms. But if there is tissue injury, um, you know, then we treat. And, you know, the cancers that you're seeing, I'm assuming, are esophageal and stomach. Is that correct? Mostly? Well, and throat, yeah. And throat as well? Yeah, a lot of throat cancer, yeah. So to the docs out there, you know, you know, my rule of thumb, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm treating a patient and they're not improving and they're continuing to have reflux, I, you know, in a pretty short period of time, then I send them out for for imaging. So um, basically scope to see what's going on because cancer can be late stage. What's your rule of thumb with that? I'm a tertiary referral center. So really everyone who comes to see me is is likely to get endoscopy at some point because that's the only way we can tell definitively if there's tissue injury. And like you mentioned, um, early uh, gastric cancer, early esophageal cancer, early throat cancer is curable. Like, you know, we catch an early esophageal cancer, like that's, you know, that's a simple endoscopic ablation. Um, you know, but if it's advanced, it's terminal. Um, so for us, if you have a young person who gets heartburn, um, they don't have any swallowing problems, they're not coughing, um, that's pretty low risk of, of cancer. But as soon as it's really is food getting stuck is a huge danger sign for us and probably the most the most common um, warning sign that there's tish, tissue injury. Got it. That's great. All right. So we've kind of talked about the common treatment methods. Did I leave much out of the common treatment methods? <laughs> yeah, I'm just good old um, good old antacids like Tom's, you know, that buffer the pH, you know. And what are the concerns with being on Tums long-term? Because I know a lot of folks pop those like candy. Yeah. Um, Ramon, I'm not really aware of any long-term dangers. I guess it depends on, you know, if you drink enough water, it could be terminal. But I don't know the... <laughs> right. And also some people will, will have problems with the calcium. And, you know, they, can, they have propensity for kidney stones and other things. And so it can, it can cause a problem that way. But... Yeah. For me, the biggest, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you can you can pop tums all day, but you know, you're not getting to the underlying problem. You're just basically masking something. So let's get to the underlying problem because I think that's what probably everybody wants to know. So how is your approach different, and what are you guys doing that is actually different? Because you have a company called Reflux Forme, correct? Mm-hmm. And so tell me how that approach is different than the standard approach that we generally see. Ramon, you want to take it? Yeah, sure. So like we were saying before, we want to keep stomach acid where it belongs in the stomach. And uh, for a while now, actually, this is something that's not brand new, believe it or not. Uh, alginates um, are a natural substance 
that they form a, essentially a raft. You can think of it as like a gel raft that coats the stomach, goes on top of the stomach contents. And then when the stomach is churning, it helps to plug up the entrance to the esophagus so that you don't have stomach contents moving up into the esophagus. So it's a physical barrier to the movement of stomach contents into the esophagus. Yeah, so alginates have two, uh, alginate therapy, we call it, of which reflux gourmet is an all-natural option. Um, alginate therapy has two primary effects. One is the demulsion effect, or it actually is very viscous and soothing, and it actually lines the mucosa of the throat, the esophagus, even the stomach, and prevents tissue injury. We did a study in, um, in rodents um, probably, oh gosh, it must have been about 10 years ago, where we took a carcinogen and put it on the mucosal lining um, and all the animals developed uh, cancer. And then we took uh, carcinogen and put the uh, alginate down and then um, we put the alginate down and then the carcinogen and none of the animals developed cancer. So it has a known protective lining um, to the throat, esophagus, stomach. Um, so that's one of the mechanisms. The other mechanism, like Ramon says, um, there's bicarbonate and vitamin B5 in it. And the calcium in the vitamin B5 um, reacts with the alginate and the bicarbonate and forms this foamy raft. And it's actually like an esophageal cork that actually prevents the regurgitation um, of the stomach contents back up into the esophagus and throat. So it's actually does prevent reflux, unlike just the simple antacids. And one of the problems is that alginates, which is just kelp, right? It's just seaweed, um, is really horrifically tasting. Um, and Ramon and I were just lucky enough um, to have a patient um, who's a Michelin-rated chef. So we have uh, Ken Frank, who is, um, is actually um, the top truffle chef of North America. He's the only That's chef where I've heard of him. That's exactly yeah. where I've heard of him. Okay, that makes sense. He is the only chef in North America to be knighted by the Royal Order of the Knights of the Truffle. Wow. And the science behind like just um, uh, collecting truffles and hunting for truffles and like it, the science behind truffles is amazing. So Ken, Ken is like truly a wizard chemist um, and he was able to, to really make our alginate therapy be palatable. And some people actually think it tastes good. Um, and actually, we've had um, customers email us. I actually put it on my ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> Is so, that real? Yeah, oh, because I am. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, because yeah, that has not been my experience. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. So Ramon and I have been really fortunate um, to be able to work with a world-class chef um, who's our third partner. So where did this idea come from? How did you guys come up with this? Well, um, alginate therapy has been around for, for a long time. There's um, you know, it's gotta be over at least a dozen um, peer reviewed articles in the medical literature um, purporting the uh, efficacy of alginate therapy. Um, there just hasn't really been an alginate therapy product available in the United States. Um, and our goal was to make an all-natural one because the alginate um, can be very difficult to preserve um, to, for shelf life. So it took us 
what Ramon like three to five years or something just to come up with a um, you know the right product that not only um, was efficacious uh, form this foamy esophageal uh, cork if you will um, but also tasted good so. so you do this supplement and you also are doing lifestyle changes I'm assuming as part of the program we talked about um, just shutting the kitchen off at you know 6 p.m we've also talked about some of the foods that might contribute um, are there any other lifestyle changes that you guys address in your program? One big one is, is also I'm just going to add elevating the head of the bed. Um, but there's also one thing we didn't talk about. We could really just have a whole discussion on hiatal hernia. But, you know, we talked about reflux as a normal physiologic mechanism, but a significant percentage of the population has what's called a hiatal hernia, where the stomach protrudes um, above the diaphragm into the chest um, where it doesn't belong. It really belongs, the stomach belongs below the diaphragm. Um, so there's actually a pouch of stomach in the chest that collects food and uh, results in an incompetent lower esophageal sphincter and promotes regurgitation. So in patients with hiatal hernia, they're sort of super refluxers um, and really prone to regurgitation. And, you know, there's actually been, you know, we actually have some, some chiropractors who treat hiatal hernia with some various maneuvers that have been shown to have some effect. Um, there's um, very effective surgical procedures to repair hiatal hernia. Our alginate therapy has been shown to, to prevent regurgitation, uh, uh, reflux gourmet in patients with hiatal hernia. But in patients with big hernia, you know, they may re require surgery. So. Um, if you really are a champion refluxer, you regurgitate constantly, have chronic cough, tissue injury, swallowing problems, um, hiatal hernia may really be the culprit. Wonderful. And one last important question, how does caffeine, um, coffee, um, play into this? Because um, that's, I love to hear people negotiate about coffee and chocolate. It's my favorite. So we, we talked to a smidge about caffeine, but we haven't called out uh, coffee directly. Can I, can I take this one, Ramon? Do you mind? Yeah, sure. As I drink my coffee here. <laughs> I drink my coffee too. And this is my National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders mug. So it's, I'm, you know, I'm passionate about swallowing problems and reflux is one of the primary causes of swallowing problems. Um, so this is my spitting is for quitters mug for people of problem swallowing. But, um, you know, the um, one of the issues about caffeine and I was sort of on, I decided I was gonna give up caffeine about 10 years ago because um, I was pro having problems with heartburn. I was also having a little bit of a rapid heartbeat. So I'm like, all right, I'm gonna give up coffee. So I'm gonna, take the rest of the world with me. Uh, but I deci was decided to do this big research project um, to evaluate the effects of just black coffee on reflux. So we actually did a, um, a blinded study where we did amp like wireless pH testing. So we put a pH capsule and clipped it in the esophagus of patients undergoing endoscopy and it measures acid in the esophagus over a three day period. And we did a washout, so patients had to give up coffee because you know caffeine can be in your system for a couple of days. 
So they had to give up coffee for, for three days prior. And then on the first day of the study, once they had the capsule in, they had three cups of hot water. And then on the second day, they had three cups of black coffee. And we actually gave them a Keurig machine, you know, with just a, a pot of um, Pete's black coffee, which is my fa favorite uh, coffee. And one, we learned two things. One is it was really, really difficult to recruit for the study because nobody wanted to give up coffee for three days um, prior to the study, uh, even if we were paying them to, to participate. Um, but the ones, you know, who for the benefit of science who uh, did participate, they actually had less reflux um, on the day that they had three cups of black coffee. So totally different, totally um, different. Yeah, so um, we didn't have enough patients to publish that, but um, you know, we do have some data to suggest that up to three cups of black coffee a day um, does not appear to be detrimental and may even have a protective benefit. So I'm big into the health benefits of black coffee. I think the problem is when you have these giant lattes um, and mochas and throw cream and sugar and everything else, totally different story. But I think you're fine with black coffee, unless it causes symptoms and anything that, that bothers you on the way down, you should avoid. But if it's not bothering you, there's a lot of benefit. Interesting. Not what I was expecting you to say. So that was, that was I'm glad I asked. So um, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? So they can find us on, well, we're selling through Amazon right now, soon to be on Walmart. You can always find us at our refluxgourmet.com website. Um, so various ways to get us. Awesome. Yeah, well, we're also in a um, apothecary in New York, and we're soon to be um, on the shelf in LA. So. Very good. Awesome. So we'll put the links below so that people can easily click. And guys, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. This has just been a great conversation. I think you've really enlightened folks on um, on GERD specifically, so and a different way to treat it. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening to the Gut Health Reset Podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, leave a rating and a review so more people can hear about the podcast. And hey, take a screenshot of this episode and tag Dr. Anne Marie on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Anne Marie Barter. And for more resources, just visit DrAnneMarieBarter.com.